Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all, even though it would be nice to see everybody's face in that little square. I know that <laughs> I know that one can't force that, but it's it's so much nicer to actually feel that you're talking to to someone instead of just a name in a black square. So thank you. Thank you for, for showing up and showing your faces. I think it would be very boring if I spoke without, from, from behind the, the black square saying Mado. I think you'd all fall asleep pretty quickly. So let me begin, um, uh, preface my remarks today with um, a claim that uh, you know, the, the um, current candidate for the Supreme Court uh, claims that she's an originalist. That is, she interprets the Constitution as it was written, as, as, it, was as it was meant to be enforced in the 1900s in the 1800s, I mean, in the 18th century, excuse me. Um, I am not an originalist, uh, whatever that might mean with respect to the Buddhist canon. Uh, there are scriptures, uh, quote unquote, there's the Pali canon, uh, there's the Tripitaka, the, the discourses, the, um, the, uh, the Vinaya, which is the psychology of Buddhist practice. Um, but I am really not interested in uh, trying to be accurate or to interpret accurately the canon as it has been transmitted. I'm much more interested in finding a way to make Buddhist teachings uh, relevant to our lives now, um, what might be called an American Zen. Um, and that means perhaps sounding uh, a little less scholarly and a lot more radical. <laughs> um, there, is a, uh, there is a statue of the Buddha at the Rochester Zen Center in upstate New York, which doesn't have a face. And the suggestion there is that American Buddhism, American Zen does not yet have a face. <laughs> it does not yet have features. And so many Dharma teachers now um, are working toward uh, developing an American Zen. And to maybe to, to search for those aspects of American culture, which seems congenial to Zen practice. So I wanna preface my remarks today because I'm also going to take a little bit of a, might be called a, an oblique approach to, um, to these teachings. We are, spending our time for the next few months on the precepts, 
which are a core part. They're the moral code, the ethical code uh, that we adopt as Buddhists. They are guidelines for a way of life. And sometimes we've heard these precepts so often, not only in Buddhist teachings, but also in other religious teachings, like the Ten Commandments. You know, all of these precepts seem so, um, so repetitive um, that sometimes we can turn off uh, we can become numb to them. Oh, yeah, I know. Don't kill. Don't steal. <laughs> don't lie. You know, I, I know all that. Um, and it just becomes something that uh, doesn't really grab hold of, of us because they're, they're, they're sort of abstract. Um, and we've heard them from the time we, we uh, can understand these concepts taken to church or synagogue or mosque or <laughs> Zendo, which probably very few of us have, have been taken to as a child. Um, <clears throat> so perhaps, um, and, and, and there's also a kind of sense of cynicism around, um, around these precepts, which seems so, um, so ideal, so so far from what we can actually manage to, to live. And I think it was uh, last week that Max brought up the, the difficulty of the relationship between our principles and our practice, how it's so difficult to translate, to apply our lives to these ideals. One of the philosophers who I studied a great deal, um, a, a, a religious existentialist named Kierkegaard, had a wonderful phrase for this. He said, most people build castles in the air and live in shacks down the street. Most people build castles in the air, but live in shacks down the street. So this is a way of calling our attention to the disparity between our ideals and what we say and how we intend to live and how we commit to live verbally but how we actually live, how we actually behave, what our real motivations in the world are. So you can probably tell more about a person's principles, not so much by what they say, but how they behave. And so it may be interesting to explore these shacks <laughs> that we live in. <laughs> um, instead of dwelling today on the ideals 
on the castles and roaming around in those beautiful halls of no killing and no stealing and no, no intoxication and no lying and actually take a look at what it might be like to have a moral code that doesn't rely on those high principles, but actually develops around a different set of principles. Um, and so I'd like to, I'd like for us to explore a particular kind of neighborhood of shacks that, um, that we can consider has grown up around the ideal of commerce, around the idea of profit, of profit making. Um, quite by accident, much as quite by accident, I was introduced to the series Breaking Bad, quite by accident, I came across uh, a, a part of a series called Star Trek. Have, many, have any of you been familiar with, I have know nothing about Star Trek. I've never watched Star Trek, but I don't even know where I came across this reference. But there was a reference in Star Trek to a civilization that was called the Ferengi. And this was an ultra capitalist race of people, <laughs> ultra capitalists. And their code of conduct was completely based on profit. And they um, had developed 265 rules of acquisition. Now, if you recall, in Buddhist practice, the original set of precepts was 235. All of these precepts were designed to encourage uh, harmony, community, peace, and liberation. That was the basis for that code to develop those 235 precepts. For the Ferengi ultra-capitalist race, we could say the ones who are living in the shacks, although they may they may think they're living in castles. I mean, what's, what's one man's shack is another man's castle, right? But this particular race of people, ultra-capitalists, developed a set of 265 precepts. They're called rules of acquisition. And keeping in mind 
these castles, these ideals in Buddhist practice. I'd like to share some of these precepts uh, that were developed by the Ferengi. War is good for business. A wealthy person can afford anything except a conscience. The bigger the smile, the sharper your knife. Never buy what you can steal. Anything stolen is pure profit. A lie isn't a lie until someone else knows the truth. Sex and profit are the two things that never last long enough. Praise is cheap. Heap it generously on those who can benefit you. Religions are profit and loss structures with pious strappings, trappings. Compassion is no substitute for profit. Truth is created by those in power. Greed is eternal. Mine is better than ours. Share and perish. Your friends and colleagues are your rungs to wealth and power. Don't hesitate to step on them. If you have to suffer, make yourself as comfortable as you can. More is good. All is better. If you have something that works, sell it. If it works well, sell it for more. If it doesn't work at all, quadruple the price and sell it as an antique. When no appropriate rules apply, 
make them up. Do you recognize this code? Does it sound familiar? It's actually hard to recognize this code because we live in the neighborhood of shacks. Ours isn't the only one. So when you live in a culture which institutionalizes greed in its economic system, the moral code will grow up around that and it will hardly be recognized. It'll just be the way you function. It'll be the way you need to function. It's about profit, not just material profit, but largely material profit. And other people will become other, not only other people, but the earth itself will become commodified, will be something that you can use to your benefit, for your profit, whether it be material profit, spiritual profit, because there is spiritual materialism. You can use spiritual life as a way to gain power, to gain wealth, and to gain mastery. You can use people, you can use uh, almost anything to profit, which is about inflating the ego, becoming a bigger and bigger self. And when you live in a culture of shacks, when the neighborhood is all made up of those shacks, it's hard to even know that there is a castle somewhere, except in words or in some te religious text. So when I, uh, part of our title today was Precepts and Poisons. Greed is one of the three poisons. It, it, um, it corrupts. <laughs> it's, it's the sense of um, having your humanity corrupted in some deep way. Hatred or anger is another poison. And delusion is a third or ignorance. So it is possible to have a, an ethics, quote unquote, which is based on greed. It is possible to have an ethics based on hatred or anger. In fact, we can ask whether 
we have institutionalized that poison, the poison of anger, the poison of hatred in our militaristic culture, in our adversarial culture. It's about winning and losing. Most everything is about in, 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 a, in a culture based on anger and hatred. It's about who are your enemies and getting rid of them. And so we, built, we build up our military. We have a department of defense, a, part, a department of war, but we don't have a department of peace, do we? And so our internal anger, in our internal hatred, those seeds of anger and hatred become institutionalized, become uh, universalized in our culture, in our institutions. So that's that our code, our moral code is about winning and losing. That's the way we think about the world. And the greed and the anger go together if you look deeply enough. And similarly, ignorance, delusion, lies, things that aren't true, that is institutionalized as well. And we can see it right now played out in our country, in social media, in corporate control of the news, do, are we getting truth? Where do we find, how do, how, do we, how do we solve the problem of ignorance? How do we know what's true and what isn't? And so in some sense, we have these different neighborhoods of shacks that grow up around these three poisons. They're not just one, one house, but we are influenced by our neighborhood, the place we live. And if we live in the, in the case of the Ferengi, in the ultra capitalist race, our, our moral code is going to become one based on profit. And it's gonna look very different from the Buddhist code which is based on compassion and wisdom and harmony. So let's not, let's not be complacent uh, about what the, the true way of living is, the best way of living, the most human way of living. There are many, many you know, moral codes that grow up. And we need to ask, what are they based on? Uh, who, who created them? Where did, where did our 10 commandments come from? 
Where did these precepts come from? And what are they based on? And how are our lives related to those? How are we really living? Are we living in the castle? Or are we living in the shack? And one of the reasons the Jukai ceremony, which is the reception, the personal reception of the Buddhist precepts, that is a public ceremony. And when you make this commitment to the castle, to living in the castle, you're going to be watched not only by others, but by yourself. You know, where am I living? What are my motives? What are the consequence, consequences of my actions? And by the way, um, our actions are not limited to the physical performance of something. Our actions are a combination of our motives and the consequences of what we do. In fact, the actual performance of an act is not as consequential as why we are motivated to do that and what the consequences are. That's really what karma is. Karma is never established by the action, but always by the motivation. Actions themselves are neutral. So I, uh, today I wanted us to, again, take a, a broader look at the place of the precepts, uh, the, the place of a moral code, maybe the, the absence of a moral code in our lives. Why is it important? If we, do we have one? Are, are we really living out the principles that we say we believe in? And so before we get kind of dive into the particulars, I think it's, I think it's important to see that the, the ways of life that we adopt or fail to adopt are our choice. They're not, they're not handed, from a Buddhist perspective, they're not handed down on the tablets. They're not handed down by some uh, uh, transcendent being. They're, they arise out of our human choice. And we and we we need to examine that because the consequence of making poor choices or unskillful choices is suffering, our suffering, and the suffering of all beings, which are completely interconnected. And that's the basis of the precepts in Buddhist practice. It's not greed, it's not profit, it's not hatred, and it's not ignorance. It's liberation from suffering. 
liberation from suffering for all beings. If that's a code that you find touches you, is meaningful, speaks to your heart, feels right, then work at it. If not, there are plenty of other moral codes out there. And unconsciously, you may be living one of those and not even aware of it, not even aware that you're in a shack. So I want to end with um, a quote from the sixth patriarch. This is from the Platform Sutra. If your mind is in balance, what need is there to work on morality? I just said to work on it. <laughs> and, and the sixth patriarch is saying, if your mind is in balance, what need is there to work on morality? If your behavior is correct, what use is meditation to you? If you can feel mercy, then you naturally care for others. If you understand faithful conduct, then all society will be in order. Our lineage holder, uh, Kobanchino Roshi, was asked one time when the residents of Jikoji, which was one of the spiritual centers that he established, um, a lot of the residents there uh, were arguing and there was a lot of conflict in the community. And one of the residents said, well, we should post the precepts in the kitchen. We should post them on the wall. Coben said, absolutely not. Do not, there is only one precept. And that is to have to make a safe place for a person to sleep. Thank you.